From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. My close relationship with my father. I mean, I'm the, there are five kids, and I'm the only one that went to aerospace, but I just felt a special close relationship with him, actually. And for a while, we lived in Seattle um, when I was young, and um, all of my um, friends' parents worked at Boeing. I mean, that was like the industry at the time. Now there's Microsoft and Amazon, but at the time it was Boeing. That was Melissa Ormi. Melissa belongs to that small group of engineers who have participated hands-on in the field of additive manufacturing before the term or even the industry of additive manufacturing even existed. Her career has been divided between academia and business. On the academic front, she worked as a professor at UCI for 12 years. After rising to full professor, Melissa relinquished her tenure at UCI in favor of joining her family in Athens, Greece, where they lived for six years. After returning to the U.S., Melissa joined Morph3D as chief technology officer. Morph3D is a company that is focused on additive manufacturing and metallic components, primarily for the aerospace and defense industry. In 2019, Melissa joined the Boeing company as vice president of additive manufacturing, in that capacity, Melissa continues to grow and scale additive manufacturing capabilities and help to rapidly expand understanding of the unique features that 3D printing can bring to factories, production lines, all while improving safety and quality. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Well, thank you so much for joining the show today, Melissa. I'm excited to kind of talk to you and get your full career story because I think it's one of the more amazing stories in in the industry. And um, why don't we just get started with kind of how did you get interested in aerospace, aerospace manufacturing, manufacturing in general? Kind of what 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 was the spark? Well, okay, so um, I was interested in aerospace, you know, before additive manufacturing. Really, you know, my father was an engineer um, for Boeing and, uh, you know, we were very close and, and I was always just thought that was a really cool, you know, um, area and, and, you know, followed in his footsteps, basically. But I went, you know, um, I, I didn't make a, a specific decision to go for graduate school that, you know, it's, it's interesting how, how things sort of happened. But um, I graduated from USC with a, a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering. Um, and then I was doing research at the time, um, and my my faculty advisor just said, Melissa, you know, why don't you, you know, continue for a master's because the research you're doing really warrants a master's degree. And I did that, and he said, well, you know, you should really stay for a PhD. And so, you know, that was not planned, and it was, you know, paid for, and I really liked what I was doing. And so what I was doing really led to then, you know, my beginning um, uh, footsteps into additive manufacturing. So um, my research all the way from undergraduate was um, basically controlling streams of molten metal droplets. I began with oil as an undergrad um, and, and, you know, sort of like drop on demand printing, uh, inkjet printing, but in a different way. Um, inkjet printing just pulses out, you know, droplets at rates, say 5,000 Hertz and, you know, Prince characters, right? And so I basically developed another way where we take capillary streams and we apply a forcing disturbance onto the surface, which causes that to break into drops. 
And that can, you know, produces droplets at a much higher frequency, like, you know, 50,000 drops per second, or, you know, depending on other things. So, so much higher frequency. And um, I created ways, which was really my um, PhD thesis at the time of manipulating um, the droplet sizes, kind of like sending code with droplet diameters, if you will, and separations. So I could create these streams of droplets with a deterministic separation and sizes of drops. So you can kind of customize, you know, how these droplets come out. Um, and so what, we, what I was doing also is let's, um, electrostatically charging and deflecting them. So I could steer them um, and I could steer the small ones someplace and then the larger ones another place and so forth. And then about that time, uh, net form manufacturing was starting to become a thing, right? It was before, so this was a long time ago, before we had powder bed machines, um, right? You know, stereolithography was just developing. Um, you know, we visited the folks, Chuck Hull, and uh, um, he was in Valencia at the time. And uh, the people in Austin were developing the powder bed. So it was very nascent um, as a technology. And um, clearly, you know, learning about this in industry, thinking, well, if I could do this with molten metal, that'd be pretty cool. And so um, I started working postgraduate with metals instead of, you know, um, I, the oil that I was working with. So I started with solder and then aluminum and, uh, you know, began steering these metal droplets at very high rates onto substrates. Um, and then I, I got a position, a faculty position at the University of California, Irvine, and I created some labs, got some nice um, research funding from National Science Foundation, DARPA, and, you know, a few other, Lawrence Livermore, you know, things like, places like that. And really started, started developing this further. Of course, in the university now, I'm looking at the, um, the fluid mechanic uh, spreading of the droplets coupled with heat transfer phase change, you know, um, that, that dynamic uh, coupled and the resulting microstructure. So sort of looking at it on a, a, a basic science point of view, um, but at the same time trying to industrialize that. And simultaneously, while I was an assistant professor, um, I created a startup company, um, which was at the time called RAD, right? Which for rapid analysis and development. Um, you weren't busy and, enough, right? Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> and so that company um, was funded by a company that doesn't exist now called Modern Printing Methods. And they were printing electronic circuit boards, solder paste um, with their, their traditional um, product was, uh, um, you know, solder paste templated, you know, circuit boards. And so the idea was to, to print these solder bottles, uh, balls onto um, patterns for ball grid arrays and other components. So we created a startup on the side and developed a machine and a platform that was able to do this, you know, make these small ball grid arrays in like a millisecond, you know, where it typically is a pick in place. It takes like, you know, a many orders magnitude time further. So, so that was very successful. And then, you know, that company was bought by, by another company, which, you know, anyway, a lot of, uh, um, you know, things happened, which caused that invention essentially to be warehoused um, so that the, uh, the initial um, technology could continue, right? 
Um, was it common at the time to have were you a lot of your colleagues in the academic ranks doing startups or was there a kind of a culture really, around no. it? <laughs> no, so that it really <laughs> wasn't common. Um, and, uh, and I was an assistant professor too at the time. But, uh, you know, I made sure that the consulting hours were, you know, um, in agreement with uh, what was, you know, um, allowed by the university. And, you know, there's to have certain numbers you're allowed to consult. And so I was doing that as a, you know, consultant, um, but really um, directed the rest of the employees, you know, on a day-to-day basis, as well as the long-term strate- strategy. So, you know, that was, um, that, was, that was really interesting. And I learned a lot about um, business and as well as the tech, you know, creating a technology for use, you know, not just research. Um, because my research laboratory at the university, you know, I mean, it's like wires all over the place and, you know, I mean, it's like uh, certainly not user-friendly, right? Um, And then, so I'm in the university also creating this net for manufacturing, uh, getting, I think, pretty, making some good progress and doing this other on the side. And then I stepped away which is the, another odd thing about my career. And the reason is very personal. Um, um, my husband is Greek and he came to this country as a graduate student, um, having done his, his undergraduate in Greece. And he uh, went to Caltech for graduate studies with the assumption he'd always just return. But life got in the way, you know, he was offered a position at USC as a professor. Um, he rose to the rank of full professor and um, he, uh, you know, we, we, we met, we got married. I also became full professor. We're happy in our academic, academic lives, right? Um, we had children, but he always had this desire to go back to his country. And when our children, I have twins, when they um, reached the first grade, you know, we said, if we don't just make this move and, and go back to Greece, then we probably wouldn't because it's too hard to uproot kids when they're involved in all their, you know, sports and their friends and things like that. So, um, you know, I really wanted to support him. Um, he, he would never um, say anything negatively, but I didn't want to be that reason that kept him from that nostalgic dream of moving back to his, his country. So, so I, I relinquished my tenure, which is you know, um, really unusual because it's something that's quite sought after. Um, it basically guarantees you salary for life, right? And it's uh, it's hard to earn. And um, but I, I relinquished that, and we packed everything. We sold our house. We moved to Greece, and um, you know, I became involved in some some aspects uh, there in technology, so really supporting his invention on a whole different topic, but uh, but working working that. Uh, fast forward, you know, uh, six years, there's like an economic crisis in Greece. And so we come back and also our kids were, you know, in middle school and we figure they'll probably go to the university in America. They better start taking classes in English. Um, and because uh, they weren't, they were speaking, you know, in, in Greek. And uh, so we came back. And so at that point, I knew I couldn't get another position in the university um, because I hadn't been, you know, publishing the requisite number of publications per year, so that, um, you know, I, I was looking for another opportunity, and ultimately, um, Ivan found me from Morph 3D, and so I was the second employee, him being the first, right, 
And, uh, um, you know, we really just formed that company. And that was, that was really good. Um, we, you know, it was really hard, I'll say in the beginning, you know, um, uh, you know, forming a new company and, and uh, becoming AS9100 qualified in, in a record time and then becoming qualified supplier for Boeing and Honeywell and, and really building up that, that um, customer base while creating the process documentation of fixed flow, which is really important uh, for quality. So, so I was brought on as chief technology officer. Um, and, and at that point, I thought that was, you know, bringing my career full cycle because in the university, I was working on research and development. And now I was working on the machines that had been produced in the time while I was gone. And we were producing metal hardware parts for industry. And, you know, I did that for over four years. And then I got a call from Boeing um, the, the chief technology officer of Boeing asked me if I wanted to lead the additive uh, activities at Boeing. And I hadn't expected that. I mean, that wasn't, you know, and it's really funny, almost everything I had done in my, my has not been part of the plan, right? But, um, you know, I always like to uh, make choices based on growth. You know, is there something that I can learn? Um, you know, and also assuming that I can contribute to the to the the new position, but I always want to want to be learning, you know. And I and I had never worked in a large corporation before, so I've gone academia, small business, now large corporation, and um, and I like challenges, and so <laughs> so so I agreed, and I've been there now almost two years, and and I have learned a lot. <laughs> I continue to learn, um, but it, it's been really really good, and now I feel like kind of full cycle, you know, yeah. until the next thing comes, you know, like, um, I, I really, you know, uh, I feel like I've uh, um, got, gone from, you know, academia, small business, large, large corporation and, and additive manufacturing, and we've really matured the industry the whole way. So it's been a, it's been a really cool ride. So kind of going, kind of stepping back in terms of, of the timeline, so when you were kind of growing up, you said your your dad was a employee at Boeing. So was there something specific that drew you to technology or flight? Um, when I'd been in, um, I spent a little time in kind of Southern California, and you kind of get the sense there's like Hollywood as an industry, but also aerospace is huge. Yeah. Like your neighbors and things like that would probably yeah. be somewhere in in the space. But was there something like? Do you know, conversation I, or just I, I think it's just the closeness, the close relationship with my father. I mean, I'm the there are five kids and I'm the only one that went into aerospace, but I just felt a special close relationship with him actually. And for a while, we lived in Seattle um, when I was young, and um, all of my um, friends' parents worked at Boeing. I mean, that was like the industry at the time. Now there's Microsoft and Amazon, but at the time it was Boeing. Um, and it was, you know, just the thing to do at that point. But, um, you know, I, I always knew there were, I had, I had any option really, but I was, I was interested in airplanes. Um, you know, for a while I took flying lessons, you know, I just, uh, they're just amazing machines, you know, that fly. It's, I was always just interested. So as you're, you're kind of dabbling in kind of so-called kind of, 
3D printing in its very early days, but like, did you, was there like a, a point in time where you kind of felt like, Hey, like this is kind of an industry that mm-hmm. is like kind of growing, like I'm helping to grow it. Like, was there like a specific turning point that you said, Hey, like this may like yeah. this has gone from like academic, like people are, are, are yeah. doing stuff in labs, but. Oh yeah. In fact, you know, we, we weren't even calling it 3d printing at the time. We were really calling it net form manufacturing and solid reform fabrication. And yeah. I remember being in a, um, in a workshop with a, a bunch of uh, folks from MIT and some other, you know, we were um, academic, uh, probably some government labs too. And that's where we coined the phrase 3D printing. And I remember saying, it would be like having a fax machine that gives you a 3D printed part. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's how early it was. You know, I mean, you, know, you send a file and out comes, it's like a fax, but it's a 3D printed tangible piece, you know, piece of hardware. Um, so then, you know, and that was like, in, um, when would that have been? That would have been in early 1990 or 87, 88, something like that, um, where we really thought that that was, I mean, I, I saw it as industry back there, something that, that we will do. I didn't imagine at the time, though, everything that, all the challenges, to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there are a lot. <laughs> Yeah. Was was there something more like if, as you reflect on it even today, like something that you didn't foresee, or like that, or that you're like, hey, like I knew that was going to be a an issue going, or like, no, some, like, you know, there was a lot I didn't foresee. I'll be honest with you. Um, I didn't know anything about what it takes to certify a part for the FAA back then. I had no experience there, um, and I didn't real I didn't realize that the machines would have to be um, demonstrated to be repeatable and reliable um, just on one machine as well as machine to machine, you know, issues like that. I mean, I would never have thought, I would have probably thought, oh, well, you know, the machine manufacturers will deal with that. And, you know, in theory, you can solve that, right? Um, but that's, a, that's an issue right now um, because machine manufacturers, they're not, um, you know, at this point making these industrialized um, meaning that if I have two of the exact same machines and I open up the cabinetry, I would expect to see the exact same wiring pattern and the exact same length of ducts, and I don't, yeah. right? And that makes a difference. Um, you know, those are things that we can we can accomplish, though. You know, that doesn't seem that hard. It's not a it's not a really um, uh, it's just a matter of doing it, right? And there are the other things. Um, another thing that is a little unexpected, but I understand now, especially working at Boeing, is the, um, the perceived risk, right? And the um, hesitancy to design for additive from the big um, players like Boeing. And, and it, there's good reason for that, right? Because engineers are taught to um, design with reduced risk. And so that means designed to a process that has decades of data, right? That's gonna prove they understand, you know, exactly how this part will behave in 20 years or whatever. And if you have it sitting in storage, you know what's gonna happen when you pull it out in two decades. And additive doesn't have that, right? And so, and so we have homework to do still as a community to prove that, that we understand how to mitigate that risk that we have the data, we have the maturity, we have the expertise, um, and that we can prove to all the designers that, yeah, we can, we can mitigate that risk because we understand 
Um, but we're not there yet, right? And so, you know, there's um, massive amounts of testing that erodes a business case, right? And then uh, um, if there's no business case, it, people say, well, why are you doing it if it's so expensive? Because you're testing every single part and CT scanning every single part, and, right? And so, you know, clearly I, I had never thought of all those aspects because I just, I just didn't understand what it took. Right. And even today, I mean, the, that's a challenge even for a specific system like DMLS and there's yeah. different flavors of that, but it seems like every month or quarter, there's a new right. spin on a different process and you have right. all these different vendors with selling multiple processes. And, and so how it's almost, I mean, probably from, from where you're sitting, like there's so many different parts and so many yeah. applications. How do you pick the so-called winner technologies that you could, you can afford to um, exactly invest right. that time in because after you 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 invest in a certain um, process right the certain modality say DMLS um, you, you know you want to you know stay the course on that right um, and so however you know we're continuously evolving as a as a industry. Right. And we need to be able to have ways to stay agile and open minded to new technologies. And I think I think that, you know, in time, I mean, DMLS is, is great, but we probably will be using it less next decade, let's say. Right. But it's really important now because it it helps us work out all of the pitfalls and nuances and and, you know, um, explain to engineers, you know, what the value is, how you can redesign, how you can do all these cool things with internal features. So it's a necessary step, but we have to really keep our, our, um, our, you know, our minds open for new technologies. And so we have to adapt ways that we can, you know, show equivalency with data sets and things like that. And that's not been ironed out yet in industry. We're working on that, even from machine to machine. If we go from one manufacturer with a big data set, and then we have a brand new manufacturer, you know, do we have to start all over with that whole data set? Or can we show equivalency somehow? You know, and that's what we're working out right now. So with Boeing and Boeing. And kind of going back to your time at Morph 3D, like that's kind of on the flip side where you're really probably in, you're staking a, company thesis on a particular type of machine, right? I mean, as a, uh, this is my guess and I'd love yeah. to hear the, the story behind it, but like as a small company, you don't have a hundred million dollars to make a mistake on buying a yeah. <laughs> DMLS system versus a powder bed versus an FDM. So can you talk about like that decision early on to yeah. kind of jump into additive where it wasn't like there wasn't necessarily supply chain pull or like right. push like Boeing wasn't throwing parts at like right. hey, buy a machine, like you can fill it for the year, but yeah. there's still some risk there. So, you know, the, my partner at the time, the founder of the company, Ivan Madeira, I mean, it was really his brainchild and he brought me on after he had already, you know, said, this is what we're going to do. And I said, mm -hmm. this is great. Um, so he basically was just looking for the next technology and went, to some conferences and learned, you know, without having any um, real technical background, you know, he's, he's a businessman. Um, he, you know, he thought this was, this was something that wanted to do because he saw a future there, which I think is really cool, right? It took a, took a lot of guts to do that, right? And, and so 
So he um, formed this company and he went with the EOS um, maker um, primarily because, you know, they were really good partners. Um, they, they gave, you know, him really good terms, you know, and, uh, you know, he, he reached out to most of them actually. And, and, the, and it was because of the partnership aspect with the OS that, that he, he went there. Um, and then once you're with a, a particular, um, machine maker, you know, you're, you're hopeful that your customers want those machines. Right. And so that was, you know, um, he, he also know that knew that, uh, you know, EOS was really one of the first to market, right? And so there's a good chance that the, um, the customers being the Boeings or the Honeywells or the, you know, Raytheons would also be using that machine. But I, I think that he's also had it in his mind that, you know, if a customer wants, you know, um, you know, has parts that need to be printed on a specific other machine, he'd go for that too. Right. So I think he he has always, you know, been saying it's gonna, his his, uh, you know, more free D's um, machine, you know, uh, um, you know, the capacity that they have is really driven by customer and, and always in terms of in terms of machine type, in terms of materials that they they use and things like that. So it's it's customer driven. And was the idea too for most of the parts that you guys were working on? Was it, and when you partner with a, a Boeing or Honeywell, was it to do kind of prototyping or kind of functional kind of end parts, like being a partner in testing, validating processes? Like, what's when a a, a big company is looking to partner with a kind of manufacturer like that? What are, what's it kind of a typical Kind of ask. So the, yeah, the typical ask. So it was that, um, you know, the the company would would manage everything from, you know, uh, you know, the development aspect. This was the Morph 3D model um, to producing hardware to to managing the 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 post processing from, you know, of course, depowdering with support removal, um, heat treatment, um, machining. Um, and then the part would be tested um, with the company with, you know, the, the, you know, they know their requirements, they need to know, they need to be the tester, you know, the testing um, authority. Uh, but, 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 you know, Morph3D would also, um, you know, manage the testing of in-process coupons, um, you know, send them out, bring them in. But of course, the company, the Boeing or, or whatever would, would be, um, in charge of, you know, the analysis of the data, right? Um, that wasn't, that wasn't Morphe3D's job. So they would, they would manage, you know, where the parts go and the analysis aspects would all, you know, be, um, you know, uh, the authority of the company, the customer. Yeah. And I mean, still that ecosystem, kind of, there are others, companies that do similar things to, to Morphe, but it's still pretty nascent. Like throughout the industry and, and it'll be interesting. I'm always curious. I was kind of asking this at AMUG, um, kind of as you see some of these suppliers and consolidation and various technologies, like if I'm a car manufacturer and I find a part that's, Hey, there's an awesome business case for 3d printing. Like, do I, like, where do I go right. for, for that? And, and if I'm the small, medium sized manufacturer, 
like that justification of buying and still somewhat a risky asset, if, especially mm-hmm. if it's not a core technology because it can be time consuming yeah. to, to set up. And Yeah, it, there's, a, there's a steep learning curve. And so if you're like a machine shop, I mean, people say, is it good for machine shops to go into additive manufacturing? I'm not sure, you know, because typically the parts that they get in machine shops, they can mm-hmm. machine. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So they probably should machine if you can. Right. Um, you really need to be involved, I think, you know, with the engineers, right, to, who are providing the machine shop the, the part, you know, from from the customer before that to help, you know, identify um, where you should be using additive. And then it needs to be redu- redesigned, you know, so you can exploit the, the value of additive, right? You can, you can lightweight it, you can use topology optimization, you can, you know, have your dual functionality with maybe cooling or, you know, whatever you want to do, but, and, and then it will become uh, probably not able to be machined traditionally, right? And then, and then if, you know, it goes back to that machine shop, uh, there's a steep learning curve on how to actually do that. Um, it's, you know, I've, I've known several people who just, you know, buy, you know, machine shops who, who buy a, a 3D printer and they don't, you know, it sits there because they, the learning curve is really, really tough, you know? Yeah. So I'm not sure that's the right move. I, I kind of like the approach more where, you know, really like the more 3D approach where you just say, I am fully focused on, on becoming an expert in additive manufacturing and putting all my resources there you know, rather than this little side, side job, you know, for some parts. Right. And I'm sure as well, and you probably can comment this on this throughout your career is like kind of thinking about how you build a team to support an additive business is a, a little bit, I mean, yeah. it has, it's unique than, I mean, every team is slightly different, but like there's, there's different considerations that, that you would have in terms of building a team at, morph versus a machine shop, right? Where you're yeah. limited. Yeah, exactly. And so you need a little bit of everything, you know, I mean, you have the, the, the engineers who um, are, uh, you know, good designers, right? And they'll, they'll spot things, you know, and then the setting up the build file, that's, you know, that takes a lot of uh, know-how. You never just use like default supports or parameters given from the company, right? So you need experts there. And getting that expertise, you know, I mean, it, it uh, takes time to grow, right? And then you have the technicians and the technicians, it's it's really skilled labor. Um, the folks that, that remove the support structures, for example, I mean, that's a bit of artistry. Uh, one wrong move and they can scrap, you know, a $20,000 part, right? And so, you know, we've had, you know, technicians that are just awesome and they just are, you know, know exactly what they're doing in terms of removing supports. And, and I, I really think it's like fine craftsmanship. You know, it's, uh, um, it's something that's really hard to find. It's, it's uh, you know, I remember that those, those folks are difficult to find. It's, it's um, harder than a CNC, a CNC programmer, for example or uh, something like that. And then setting up the machines and just loading and unloading them. It sounds like, oh, just setting up the machines and loading and unloading them. Well, the way they're made today, and there's still a lot of expertise in terms of leveling things, you know, getting things aligned and, um, you know, a lot of know-how and expertise there too. So um, there's a lot of training 
that that's that's involved. And then and then you go to the ecosystem, right? Which hardly exists. The ecosystem that you need for um, all the post processing, you know, the stress relief, and then the hipping, and then the CT scanning, and maybe there's anodizing, and you know, depending on what your part needs, and um, and that still needs to grow in the industry. I mean, I don't really think that um, we have that really figured out yet. You know, there's a couple of uh, companies that are coming on board that just want to do post-processing, um, which is, I think, a, a really good goal. But I don't think they have it quite figured out yet. I mean, they don't have everything end-to-end. And, um, you know, all those things have to be NADCAP approved and, um, you know, have specific uh, specifications. Sounds a little redundant to say that, but, um, you know, and so, you know, and, and then it needs to accept the scale right that that we will have because i think we will have an inflection point and that suddenly you know and maybe 23 24 we're going to have a lot more additive activity um but that, that ecosystem needs to be in place i'm not so sure that it is yet yeah. <laughs> i would agree yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And so kind of making the transition to boeing where it's a huge organization and, and you're overseeing additive from a, a global level and in, in a corporation that does space and yeah. commercial and defense. And, and so from a leadership position, kind of what's that like kind of taking the message of additive within a corporation that's not like, it's not the main, yeah. it's not like more for that's the main business. It's part of a, a portfolio. Yeah. Like, can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, you know, what, what I see as, as, Part of my goal is to um, train engineers on, you know, what is, uh, you know, where does you know, additive bring value, right? You got to make sure that people aren't just, you know, designing sheet metal brackets and things like that for additive. But what we're really trying to push is, um, and this this doesn't work for heritage programs. It only works for new products, really. Um, you know. Basically, use additive to create differentiating vehicles. You know that only additive can provide. Um, instead of optimizing a part, let's optimize the entire vehicle, right? And that doesn't mean by having a whole bunch of optimized parts, right? It means by um, taking the design and and designing in small conforming spaces so that you can make things more streamlined. You know, so it uses less fuel or, um, you know, uh, just more durable, you know, uh, you know, increased performance, however you do that. And, and that's really, in my view, the end goal of, of um, optimizing vehicles rather than optimizing parts. Now for heritage programs, you know, like commercial airplanes, um, you know, we're still doing part for part replacements and there's not as good of value there because when you have a part for part replacement, you still rely on all the surrounding parts to fit it to, right? You have an existing bolt pattern, if you will, right? And so you can't shrink that, right? And so you can't you know, really optimize as much as you could um, if you were starting from scratch, right? And so, but we, we, are, we do have several parts that are like in line for production um, on commercial aircraft, you know, because they, they allow us to learn they um, allow us to work out our kinks, you know, that we have with production. It allows us to establish our relationship with the FAA um, to understand everything that all the data we need to provide. And so it's really useful. 
Um, you know, and the business knows that even though the business case is not as good, right, because we haven't optimized it as much and, you know, because we're testing the heck out of it, right, um, because, you know, because it's still very nascent, you know, it's part of the learning process. And then uh, we're looking forward to other, other you know, um, you know, for example, in BDS and like satellites, we have a lot of new you know, projects coming forward and provides huge opportunity for really um, exploiting additive, right? Or in, you know, uh, other future programs, some of which I can't talk about, but, you know, a whole new products, um, not necessarily in satellites that allow us to start from a clean slate and say, okay, how, you know, if, if, how should we design this if we're not constrained to traditional manufacturing? right? How can we optimize this product? So we're, you know, if, with respect to Boeing, we're looking at it from many different aspects. BCA, which has, you know, at this point, part for part replacements, but a lot of really good learning that's, that's required, right? And then um, also the, the, the insertions that we've been making in satellites, and there's been probably thousands of parts, right? Um, and then that are on products. And then the future designing of really differentiating products rather than parts. And kind of coming full circle as, as a lot of the listeners that kind of tune in into this podcast are, or I at least hope are kind of on various parts of their kind of either manufacturing or add to manufacturing kind of career path kind of in kind of, your vast experience, kind of what advice would you give kind of even looking back at your own career, kind of starting out, like, is there any kind of uh, piece of advice that you would give or thing that you should keep in mind as, as you're going through your career and, and kind of, if you're interested in manufacturing or 3d printing. Hmm. Well, I, 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 I don't know if it would be specific to 3d printing or additive manufacturing. I mean, hmm. 3d print I, for that, I could say, I mean, but it would be the same for anything that you're passionate about is, is follow your passion, right? And follow it hard, right? And then, you know, read whatever you can from, you know, the LinkedIn articles to the scholarly peer-reviewed journal articles, know the subject, right? Know what people are doing in industry, know what people are doing in, in academia, right? Um, get, get as much information as you can and, and um, and, and follow it, you know, follow your passion. And if you, you know, I mean, with, with me, um, I've always, everything I've done, I've, um, I've made some risky decisions, right? I gave up, you know, academia. I, you know, I've done a lot of, you know, moves to a foreign country. I've, um, you know, done a of, uh, things that are a little unconventional, but it's, it's always been a, um, a calculated risk you know, um, saying what, you know, and looking at life in, in the holistic sense, right? I mean, with, for example, when I left academia, the holistic sense meant, you know, my family life had to be happy too, or else I couldn't be successful professionally. I and mean, that's for me, right, personally. And so, you know, I wanted to make sure that, that holistically as, you know, as a human being, that, that the choices I made for, you know, family and professional, they kind of, they kind of go together, right? Um, so I've made a lot of um, sort of unconventional choices, you know, that were measured risk, 
Um, and each time, however, I always want to make sure that I'm, I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm, you know, you know, basically becoming better, you know, as someone in industry, someone in academia or a human being in general, right? So it's always, it's always a risk but making sure that the next step is, is improvement in some way. Absolutely. And so in kind of looking forward into the remainder of the year, you know, are there things you're excited about, you're excited about either from a company perspective or learning about regarding the industry or kind of your own career? Well, I mean, the, the remainder of the year, I am the most excited about like seeing people face to face and getting out of my home office. You know, um, I, I, I was I have been vaccinated. And so I had my first trip in a year to meet the team in the Puget Sound um, two weeks ago. And that was so awesome. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that a lot more regularly, just to have the face to face, because, you know, that's part of, you know, we are, I mean, people, right? And the, what we do relies on the people, our team, um, you know, every, basically I'm not responsible for the work. I'm responsible for the people who do the work, right? And uh, it's, it's really important to make sure that our team is healthy, you know, not just physically, but, you know, in, in you know, being connected with each other and feeling, you know, good about what we do. And so, um, that's that's really important to me and I'm, I'm working you know on that really just uh making sure that the team has what they need um to do to do what our our goals are for this year and we have our goals lined out for 2021 and 2026 right i mean we have them you know we have very specific goals and we have a lot of work to do and a lot of that has to do with the things i've already discussed you know, with, you know, education, with um, qualification for FAA, um, for, you know, designing new products. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot of really good stuff on the horizon that we're excited for. Really good. Well, that's awesome. And thank you so much for, for sharing your story today. Very inspiring and excited to see what else you and Boeing comes out with on the additive side in the coming years. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Cool.